Ian Oshless a Guinea Core, Ohasarum Veliver, Lotavakdak, a Kartan Dinner. Dear friends, I'm honoured to address so many distinguished representatives from our national and international public services, from the trade union movement, and from national and global society, who are making a reflection on the significance of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and its contemporary resonance and relevance. I do want to thank Martina Fini for introducing me, and I also want to pay tribute indeed to the Department of Foreign Affairs and its staff for organizing this important meeting. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights proclaimed on this day 70 years ago by the United Nations General Assembly is correctly regarded as one of the great moral achievements of the 20th century. Yet we meet today not only to celebrate, as I have said, but to make a reflection at a time increasingly marked by cynicism and fear, discord and distemper, a time in which the according of fundamental rights are their vindication in law and practice of people across our planet, economic rights, social rights, political rights, civil rights, are being denied, ignored, or under threat. As to the challenges that confronted that world 70 years ago in 1948, it was a world in the aftermath of war, but one that had yet to experience, of course, the complex process of decolonization. These challenges of 48 and later still abide with us. In some respects, different respects, they have grown in scale and scope. And the imperative to confront the great inequalities that divide our societies, the persistence of racism and the mind of imperialism, and the urgent need to welcome all those fleeing war, persecution, and famine, the need to offer a hospitality such as would acknowledge the migrant, the stranger, what is perceived as different is yet to be achieved. In the 21st century, our planet and its people now face dangers, the products of a distorted vision of the connection between economy and nature. What began as domination of nature, after all one recalls phrases such as that of Francis Bacon, I lead to you nature and her children in bondage for your use. In all of that, you have the prejudices of the destructive vision that has brought us to the point of peril where we are. It has led to the loss of biodiversity, the unpredictable consequences of alterations to the nitrogen, phosphorus, and sulfur cycles, and the potentially catastrophic effects of the accumulation of greenhouse gases in the Earth's atmosphere. Amidst these new perils and ancient struggles, it can be quite thrilling to read again the preamble of the Universal Declaration with its brave affirmation that, I quote, recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. That fundamental idea, the inviolability of human dignity, had much earlier animated the great movements of thought and action that had shaken the Atlantic world in the 18th century from the infant United States to Jacobin France, from the United Irishmen to the Haitian Revolution. It is an idea that was given expression in 1785 by Immanuel Kant in his great ethical imperative that we should seek, I quote, to treat humanity, whether in our own person or in the person of any other, never merely as an end in itself, but always at the same time, I beg your pardon, never merely as a means to an end, but always at the same time as an end in itself. It is an idea that witnessed a revival in Christian thought during the Second World War. On Christmas Day 1942, Pope Pius XII spoke of the dignity of the human person and the dignity of labor as milestones chiseled on the path to peace, pointing to what he referred to as, I quote, the post-war renovation of society. And in that same year, William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, outlined a vision of society dedicated to human dignity in what was a best-selling book, Christianity and the Social Order. 
Temple advocated nothing less than a, the universal provision of healthcare, education, decent housing, and decent work, inspiring his friend William Beveridge and spurring a new ambition in the British Labour Party, those founding moments of the great studies on poverty. The temper of the times, the shared anxieties and hopes, seemed to be ones that filled with the affirmations of the preamble. And this ethical inheritance, drawing from the very best instincts of both secular republicanism and religious thought then, was certainly one that informed the drafting committee of the United Nations Commission on Human Rights that would be chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt, who, who prepared, and those who prepared the text of the Universal Declaration. When I delivered the Human Rights Commission's annual lecture in 2012, it would be the last hosted by the Commission before its merger with the Equality Authority. I made a reflection on the curious background of the drafting process itself. The newly established United Nations Educational, Scientific and Cultural Organization had been tasked with seeking statements from academic, cultural and artistic institutions that, were regarded as, that would be regarded as reflective of the diversity of world opinion. In an age still dominated by imperialism, such diversity was of necessity relatively narrow in scope but it did represent, nonetheless, an attempt to discover consensus on what might be international human rights. The legal scholar and anthropologist, Professor Mark Goodale, has provided a fascinating account in his book, Surrendering to Utopia, on the position of the American Anthropological Association, for example, who, though not formally concerted by UNESCO, had prepared their own court statement on human rights just a year earlier. In an era in which the application of human rights, particularly within cultural or religious contexts, has become fraught, even contested, the anthropologist posed what we might consider today as a mildly prophetic question. How can the proposed declaration be applicable to all human beings and not be a statement of rights conceived only in terms of the values prevalent in the countries of Western Europe and America? As practitioners who had lived with and observed many human cultures, anthropologists were more aware than most of the diversity of human experience and manifold definitions of what constitutes the good life. The very universality invoked in the language of the Declaration was awe-inspiring, some might even say hubristic, even though the French revolutionaries, for example, may have at the height of their courage and elan sought to apply that Declaration on the Rights of Men to the peoples of Europe, it had been intended in the first instance to apply to the French citizens alone. To avoid the danger of any perceived Western-centrist thought, the anthropologists proposed that the draft Universal Declaration might rely on three propositions, the most important of which was the first, that it be accepted that the individual realises their personality through their culture. Hence, respect for individual differences entails a respect for cultural differences. When I quoted this six years ago, I felt it necessary to quickly hasten to add that I was referring to context being taken into account in terms of application. It was not to be interpreted as any acknowledgement of a cultural condition that could be used, indeed abused, to obstruct a fundamental right. Such a perspective can also be found, perhaps ironically, in the writings of Immanuel Kant in his Enlightenment Against Empire. In Immanuel Kant, in his book, Samuel, in his book, I think, Sankar Mutu, in his book, Enlightenment Against Empire, which pays tribute to those exceptional people in the Enlightenment who were against empire, Sankar Mutu speaks of the passionate anti-imperialism of Kant, who wrote two centuries ago, the innate right to freedom of all people derives from our humanity itself, from our capacity to create, to invent, to educate desire, our use of the powers of imagination and reason, and our capacity to recall the past and anticipate the future. And above all, 
which is a very Kantian phrase, our universal feelings of sympathy. Thus, I suggest that in advancing the principles of the Universal Declaration, a leap beyond reason is required, and in different cultures it may receive different titles, spirit, heart, empathy, decency. After long and unceasing struggles for national independence too, so many of them in so many different nations, the United Nations in the composition of its membership changed, and of course is now far more reflective of world opinion than it was in 1948. And we must bear in mind too that the United Nations, was, the, the Universal Declaration, was adopted by the General Assembly of the United Nations. The General Assembly carried an authority that would increase with membership through decolonization and the achievement of independence and the expansion of membership. Today, its normative statements have sadly lost influence, and they struggle to even gain the interest of the global media. The action, as far as the global media is concerned, is in the Security Council, or more accurately, the inaction. The General Assembly has lost heavily to the Security Council in terms of responding to conflict and in economic terms to institutions originally accountable but now trapped themselves within an unaccountable and ever more destructive version of global economics. That is, judging it in terms of its separation from either ecological or social responsibility. Is it now possible to discern a commitment to the universalism of the Declaration on the part of the United Nations members? I believe it'd be more fruitful to ask the more fundamental question as to whether it is possible to derive universal moral principles within a version of global economy where the speculative forces of capital are eight times the scale of any patient or productive capital that had previously prevailed. And of course, the widening gap between post-war and current forms of capital answers my question. The normative order of a rights discourse does not easily fit with unregulated capital flows. And this is a problem for the rights community and for us all. As to the source of the rights discourse, when Pius XII addressed the faithful and called for the recognition of universal human dignity, he did so by drawing on a Thomas tradition, which has been a powerful intellectual force within Catholicism. The perennial philosophy, as the Second Vatican Council termed it, it was a force that suggests a marriage of faith and reason. And William Temple, whom I quoted, who was the leading Anglican theologian of his time, presented a remarkable philosophical defense of revelation as a source of knowledge, a faith that he believed demanded a just social order. And today, many of our fellow global citizens locate their impulse towards human rights as once as revealed systems of faith. Many of them outside the Christian and Jewish traditions, familiar to citizens in Europe and in America. And our success and failure, I suggest, may be in defending human rights in this century, may well be defined by the capacity for dialogue between the invoked different sources of rights. And in doing so, we do not have to give ground to those who approach the discourse in bad faith or indeed with malign intent. For we can never, of course, yield ground to those who would violate the rights, for example, of LGBT people, religious minorities, women, girls, migrants, or any of the most vulnerable members of the human family. It is important not only to recall then the rationalist intellectual wellsprings of the Universal Declaration, but also the institutional setting in which it was promulgated. Born as it was of the terrible experience of the Second World War and of the promises made by and to the citizens of the victorious nations whose leaders had brought their people to war or responded to war. A feeling of, the of something had happened. A feeling of the importance of collective action 
had been made manifest in the atmosphere that succeeded the war. And in his genealogy of the idea of human rights, the legal scholar and historian Samuel Moy has reminded us that post-war context was also the moment in which governments were constructing national welfare states, whether through the continuation of the New Deal in the United States, the dirigisme of the resistance-led Fourth French Republic, or the revolution by consent in Britain, as Harold Lasky so memorably described it. Human rights were something to be achieved within the nation-state, to act as, in the words of the Universal Declaration itself, a common standard and achievement for all peoples and nations. In practice, these rights, and let us recall the Universal Declaration speaks of rights and freedoms, were secured, yes, against the state, but also by the agency of the state. The personal rights to life, liberty, security, freedom of speech and freedom of conscience require at once a check on the potential tyranny of the state, but the society within which they are sought also requires positive action by the state and agents of the state, many of whom, of course, I'm so pleased have joined us here today. It would be disingenuous in 2018 to avoid acknowledging the fact that since the end of the 1980s, the role of the state in terms of its role in achieving collective welfare has been significantly eroded. In recent decades, the realm of what has been ceded to unaccountable market forces has immensely increased, realms previously publicly accountable. These realms include health, housing, education, employment. The economic and social rights that are enumerated in Articles 22 to 27 of the Universal Declaration, the right to work, to protection against unemployment, to join trade unions, to holidays and leisure, and most radically to an adequate standard of living, all demand collective action and a role for the state to be both secured and provided. In the late 1940s, despite all the damage and destruction caused by the war, nation states were determined to put in place institutions capable of vindicating those rights, not only at home, but through international cooperation across the globe. The Swedish political scientist, Gosta Esping Andersen, wrote of these new welfare states as reducing the citizens' dependency on that most 19th century of institutions, the market economy. In other words, the welfare state decommodified and removed from the vicarious uncertainty of the market many of the utilities required to live a full and free life. In the 1940s, the international economic order embodied in the Bretton Woods regime and its institutions. Most notably, the International Monetary Fund was reconstructed, drawing on the same liberal spirit that had informed the Universal Declaration. The new institutional arrangements were designed in a way that would allow nation states with the domestic autonomy to pursue their national goals. Full employment, expanding social protection, universal services, without the kind of sudden adjustment shocks that had characterized the era of the gold standard of the 19th and 20th centuries. The international relations scholar, John Rugin, has termed this new compromise embedded liberalism. At its heart, the new order relied on a dramatic suppression, compared to what had gone before, of the role of financial companies in the allocation of investment and resources in both the national and international economy. One of the architects of that Bretton Woods system, John Maynard Keynes, was blunt in asserting the role and responsibility of the state for controlling movements of capital, stating that under the new regime, capital controls were to be, I quote, a permanent arrangement. The new plan, he said, I quote, accords to every member government the explicit right to control all capital movements what used to be a heresy is now endorsed as orthodox. The false freedom of capital had yielded at that moment 
to the accomplishment of other freedoms and other rights. When we speak then of the interdependence of rights, of the indivisibility of rights, and of the universality of rights, we must ask ourselves whether fundamental personal rights can truly be exercised without the provision of basic human needs and the fulfillment of economic and social rights to all people as a matter of course. There is, of course, no linear relationship between the international institutions of the post-war world and the framers of the Universal Declaration or the drafters of Bretton Woods. They were rather part of the same impulse, an impulse that was evident not only in socialist movements across the world, who were seeking an even more ambitious vision of world order founded on an expansive definition of social justice, but in the New Deal in the United States and the new Christian Democratic Party's platforms in Europe. Their new moment was not without its contradictions or its betrayals. The old empires of Europe, desperate to cling to the power and resources endowed upon them by their colonial possessions and the labour of their subjects, simply ignored declarations regarding the right of self-determination of peoples, such as were contained in the Atlantic Char Charter. And they denied by their actions any notion of the universality of human rights by enforcing quite different standards of law and practice in their colonies and protectorates. A dramatic example, perhaps, is provided by French practice, where there was a very limited extension of rights from the mother country to the territories overseas. Yet the very act of giving utterance to the human rights plea and discourse, and separately the right to self-determination, were themselves catalysts for a new wave of struggles for self-determination. They were at times bitterly resisted and contested by old empires, often under the cloak of anti-communism. And then within the Soviet Union, a centralized status logic was defining communism in a manner that suppressed personal freedoms. Yes, history suggests a great power to the act of proclamation itself, and we should never underestimate the revolutionary power of proclamations of universal rights. After all, when the National Assembly of France ratified the Declaration of the Rights of Man in 1789, they, perhaps unknown to themselves, were initiating a concatenation of explosive revolutions, the most emancipatory of which occurred in the slave plantations of Haiti, a story marvelously told by C.L.R. James in his 1938 book, Black Jacobin. Although it is true that the Haitian slaves were giving fleeted assist, were fleeting, given fleeting assistance by the Committee of Public Safety, conservative forces soon sought to reimpose slavery on the island. And James famously wrote that French politicians never really understood the effect of the ideals of the French Revolution on the Haitian slaves, which, I quote, meant far more to them than to any Frenchman. So too did the United Nations and its institutions mean far more to the successors of Toussaint Louverture in the 20th century than to the established nations of the world, among some of which the mind of empire and privilege was holding an obdurate force. I recognize something similar in the same call for authenticity that comes now in our time from those publics directly affected by the consequences of climate change, rising sea levels, desertification, new violences including gender-based violence, violence against refugees, migrants, the poor. The University Declaration gifted us a magnificent moment in humanity, one that would give in form in time through national human rights institutions and movements and regional human rights accords, some of which have, through the agreement of the states involved, created justiciable rights and through what can now be considered an international human rights system, a system that is complex, multilayered, heavily dependent on the capacity to access legal resources. Professor Fabrini has written about the specifics of this in relation to Europe. That contemporary system 
is founded upon the Universal Declaration and the nine international treaties agreed in the succeeding years. From the 1966 International Covenants on Civil and Political Rights and on Economic, Cultural and Social Rights, to the Conventions on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, of Discrimination Against Women, on Torture, on the Rights of the Child, on the Rights of Those with Disability, for the Protection of Migrant Workers and Their Families, and Against Forced Disappearances. The treaty rights bodies now in place do and have done important and vital work in monitoring the degree to which parties have fulfilled their obligations. And we in Ireland need only think of the observations of the Committee Against Torture on the state's second periodic report to the committee. Yet in speaking of that, let us also acknowledge that states frequently ignore such observations, however damaging that may be to their own people and to the consequences for the legitimacy of the international human rights system itself. Human rights must, of course, ultimately, after all, be vindicated and protected by nation-states. Article 1 of the United Nations Charter recognises that the nation-state, based on the principles of self-determination as the fundamental political community within that global order, States, of course, have been unwilling to resile from that principle, in many cases less out of adherence <coughs> to abstract ideals of absolute territorial sovereignty and more out of self-interest. The 1998 Rome Statute and the establishment of the International Criminal Court in 2002 together represent important milestones in progress towards the recognition that those who perpetrate crimes against humanity should face justice. Though, as we are all well aware, three of the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council, the body charged with maintaining international peace and security, have refused to join or recognize the court's jurisdiction. The end of the Cold War brought with it an opportunity, perhaps, of renewed international cooperation shorn of the bifurcated rivalries that so often inhibited concerted action before on a global level. I can vividly recall attending the World Conference on Human Rights in Vienna in 1993. A moment of hope and expectancy, yes. But I asked myself, was it not also a moment that left one with some concern? The Vienna Conference was swiftly followed by the establishment of the Office of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights, a duty performed with distinction by one of my predecessors as President of Ireland, Mary Robinson. The OHCHR has played a vital and important role in supporting and promoting human rights, and I am so pleased that we are joined by Fanulani Elon and Peggy Hicks as President of Ireland in the 25th year of the OHCR, may I salute them and acknowledge the work that they and their colleagues undertake. In 2006, the OHCHR assumed new responsibilities, supporting the United Nations Human Rights Council, which is an important complement to the 10 treaty rights bodies now in place. And at its best, the Universal Periodic Review provides a mechanism to address the totality of a country's compliance with their obligations. <clears throat> Despite the importance of all the institutional innovations I've mentioned since the 1990s, I cannot help but think that the moment of Vienna in 1993 was also a missed opportunity, a moment of elision, even evasion, of a fundamental reality. It did not take account of what was spinning away from accountability, a new form of global economy. Why do I say this? It seems to me an undeniable historical fact that the institutional underpinnings of the post-war economies which I have, to which I've made reference, those institutional arrangements of the industrialized world, full employment, the welfare state, capital controls, had long before begun to unravel amidst the recession of 1974-1975, the first recession since the Second World War. That recession was, however, only the proximate cause of a greater unraveling. 
Most influential was a new vision of political economy and of the relationship between society, state, and the economy. I refer to the ideology that dares not speak its name. The political theory and practice of economic governments we know today as neoliberalism. Though given a diverse political and institutional expression, the neoliberals of the 1970s and 80s shared a number of foundational beliefs that the market and movement and relative prices could and should allocate resources in society, that the pursuit of individual self-interest would have an aggregate outcome that was preferable in terms of its individual private benefits to any collective shared benefit. That such an individualized understanding of what is good should guide public policy. That the privileging of the public realm and public purpose should be suspect, even disdained. You'll find the extreme version of this in all of those Think tanks funded by, for example, the Koch brothers and others, which flow through universities following this very clear ideological system. Sometimes not stated, sometimes not needed to be stated. The neoliberal concept of rights descends we should consider, not from any appeal to the dignity of man or woman, but from the Hobbesian conception of constraining the war of all against all. The laws of the market, even as they were redrafted and reconceptualized by the state, were elevated to the position then of a natural law. It was not necessary for them to be justified in terms of assumptions. Now a taken for granted version of the market had become the sole informing source of public policy. And as 2008 followed 1974, in terms of crisis, it became clear that the capacity to engage in any dialectical way to use Adorno's phrase, with the contradictions that a new form of capital was creating, was being lost, even in the academy. And this would later result in concerned students demanding the right to a pluralism even in the syllabus of economics courses, a mild protest in comparison with 1968, but felt to be a necessary one. The hegemony of extreme market thinking had a profound effect on the possibility of realizing the promises of the Universal Declaration. In policy and in practice, states increasingly felt confident and resiling from efforts to progressively realize economic and social rights, and successive programs of neoliberal restructuring were sometimes accompanied by outright suppression of political and civil rights. In policy terms, those programs were characterized by removals of constraints on the movements of capital and the concentrations of wealth, privatizations, redistribution of income upwards through reductions in the taxation of capital and wealth, and the suppression of collective bargaining and trade unions. Both their outcome and their processes have been documented by many scholars, including, of course, people such as Thomas Piketty. Amidst the early signs of the unravelling, there had been moments of hope. The newly freed nations of the world who had overthrown colonialism and joined the nations in the 1960s had brought with them a new vision for the realisation of all rights of all people. And all, in 19, April 1974, the United Nations General Assembly adopted the Declaration for the Establishment of a New International Economic Order. Its programme was not revolutionary, reformist, yet its ambitions and programme offered a capacity equal to the great task of ensuring or even attempting progressive global developments based on economic cooperation between North and South, East and West. It foresaw and demanded the regulation and control of activities of multinational corporations the freedom to nationalize foreign property, the sharing of economic and technical expertise, the transfer of vital technology on an equitable basis, and international trade are managed by countries working together on stable prices for the raw materials sourced from the developing countries. I pose and ask, can global leaders, some might ask, have the imagination or daring today to dream of such a world? 
a world in which collective rights were recognized as the necessary foundation for individual rights. Publics in politics and civil society must gain a new confidence to say, yes, a sustainable world is possible. And they will seek to bring that quality of leadership with that question forward. For I believe the future intergenerational justice itself surely requires it. A collective right to development had been proclaimed, after all, in December 1986 by the General Assembly, in recognition, I quote, that all human rights and fundamental freedoms are indivisible and interdependent. And yes, that right was reaffirmed in Vienna in 1993. Yet by then, the structure of the international economy was entirely insufficient, even hostile, to realization of any right to development. That new post-war orthodoxy so carefully crafted by such as John Maynard Keynes had itself been reversed and overturned. Financial deregulation and international capital mo mobility were the unquestioned instruments of a set of newly emboldened financial markets which were encouraged and enabled to discipline governments themselves through changes in the price of government debt or threats of capital flight. Nowhere was that more evident than in the marginalization of the most enduring of the international human rights institutions, the International Labour Organization, which has for nearly a century dedicated its efforts to creating a more just and equal economic order, built not only on the dignity of humanity, but on the dignity of labour and commitment to the common good. The ILO had been at the centre of attempts, not always successful, to transform what is a globalisation of capital and wealth into a globalisation of interdependent peoples. It has sought to overturn the now discredited Washington consensus, offering instead a vision based on decent work for all, a globalisation of the social floor rather than an imposition of a social ceiling, a globalisation based on human rights, social protection and social dialogue. Could all of this change in the infrastructure of economy, finance, life changes, leave the human rights discourse unaffected. You see, the danger, as so many scholars such as Stephen Hapgood and Samuel Moyne have seen it, has been that the discourse of human rights, more particularly the language of individual and political and civil rights, has been used by some to obscure what has been a very real transformation in political economy one that threatens the universality, interdependence, and indivisibility of rights, and that it was used so easily as a mask to mask a very specific set of political beliefs and practices that in effect ignore and militate against economic, social, and cultural rights. And as I look back now at the, on the World Conference at Vienna, I ask, was it a success, really? Or did it, I think, perhaps unknowingly, offer a mask that would cover a lost impetus for egalitarianism, humanism, emancipation? And this becomes most acute when we look at the text in the reaffirmation of the universal right to development. Was it not, are those words in the text not an intellectual capitulation to a form of globalization that would just as natural law had done in its medieval time, become regarded as the new inevitability, a globalization informed not just by neoliberalism, but animated in cultural policy terms by a version of modernity that derided tra tradition, ignored the diversity of human culture, and one without reservation allowed the fruits of science and technology most often created by state expenditure and public taxes, flow to private benefit and, of course, be available for the arms industry. As all of the practitioners and advocates here today know and understand, human rights, as they might be experienced, do not and never will drop from the sky, nor were they ever simply conceded. They were won, often through demanding and difficult struggles, Struggles marked by setbacks and even defeats. 
Battles that sometimes occurred in the courtroom, yes, but much more often than not, struggles that were decided on the protest and picket line and in parliaments and legislatures. In A Man for All Seasons, Thomas More seeks to avoid the great moral question of his day with a famous phrase, but in the thickets of the law, oh, there I am a forester. Governments in so many nations have been taking refuge in the thickets of the law for some time now, and they will continue to do so unless they're contested. Yes, there is much that can be accomplished through legal processes, and many of the most redoubtable champions of human rights have come from the legal profession. But for us to succeed, the philosophy of human rights must reach the publics. The future of human rights must be secured in public consciousness and not as an alternative to progressive or radical politics, economics, or social policies. These struggles, discourses, belong together. For we must never forget that unaccountable private power can afford to hire brilliant, gifted members of the legal profession. I so often think of the peasants in Ecuador who, having won their case at national level for clean water, defeated a multinational company could watch that company say at its annual meeting later in the United States. We will contest this until hell freezes over, and then we will contest it on the ice. Creating a popular culture of human rights has never been more urgent than it is today. We are now witnessing political forces who do not even attempt to wear the mask of human rights. There are those who now openly deny rights won through long and difficult struggles and to glory and discrimination, racism, and a crude xenophobic forms of nationalism. And we must remember that it is a distortion of nationalism, that one that builds on fear of the other, the stranger. The danger is not only the direct political power they wield, but in the poisonous influence that they now exert on those who, for reasons of short-term political gain or disadvantage, and in the name of a false consensus, would seek to concede to their demands. That danger is most acute and most present in the attacks on Article 14 of the Universal Declaration, the right to seek and enjoy asylum, and on the refugee conventions. The threats to human rights emanate not only from states but I repeat again, from unaccountable agglomerations of private power. I've spoken of the economic and largely non-transparent power and authority of multinational corporations, an influence that is being felt unequally across the world, but that is being felt nonetheless. So often when we speak of the market, we're really speaking of large individual firms exercising extreme power far greater and more extensive than in some states. There is now, and so we need it, and I welcome it, a return to the debate on the role of the state in works such as that of Mariana Mazzucato in her books, The Entrepreneurial State and the Value of Everything. And she, among others, offers an influential scholarly resource to those who retain belief in the recovery of political economy as a subject and source of policy which can accommodate the human rights discourse. And we are already witnessing, too, a welcome rediscovery of the role of the state in regulating the power of the technology sector. It is a debate that has been too long delayed. But may I caution that the terms of that debate should be grounded not only in the individual right to privacy, but also the vindication of the right to information and the right to communicate. And these are not novel questions for those of us in the human rights movement. In 1981, UNESCO assembled an international commission for the study of communications problems, chaired by the champion of human rights, Sean McBride. In the context of the rise of global commercial communications network, the commission recognized that the cultural rights of peoples and the rights of the individual to contribute to their culture required a right to participate in the production of information the guarantee of a diversity of voices and opinion, a strong public service media, the restriction of private media monopolies, the guarantee of the freedom of the press, and reciprocity in the flow of information between North and South. In the 21st century, the single greatest overwhelming challenge will be overcoming, of course, 
what threatens to be an ecological collapse. And doing so in a manner that can fulfill the needs of all the peoples of the planet in a just and sustainable way, thus realizing the rights enumerated in the Universal Declaration. Three years ago, the members of the United Nations met in New York and Paris to conclude two remarkable demonstrations of global solidarity, the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development and the Paris Climate Accord. These agreements have the potential to be the means by which we can organize and combine and measure our success or failure in this century. Achieving the Sustainable Development Goals within the context of the Paris Climate Accords will be profoundly difficult without a radical change in the manner by which we produce, consume and live. In short, it will require a reconceptualization of our idea of the economy that is no less radical than which occurred after the Second World War or during the neoliberal turn in the 1980s and 90s. It requires a paradigm shift for our very survival. None of us who seek to realize the full promise then of the Universal Declaration can afford to be neutral in this endeavor. Ian Goff, in his book Heat, Greed and Human Need, has suggested that we might begin with eco-social policies that start from addressing human need. If we acknowledge that the vast majority of historical greenhouse gas emissions were and are produced by the global north, indeed by a small number of large corporations, and that today the richest 10% of the world's population are responsible for half of total lifestyle consumption emissions, the moral case becomes incontestable. In these conditions, realization then of the principles of the Universal Declaration in a manner that recognizes the interdependence, universality, and indivisibility of human rights will require a renewed engagement with fundamental questions of redistribution, social consumption, social investment, and eco-social policies. One that acknowledges, too, a role for the state. That is necessary, but I acknowledge it will be difficult, for there is an intolerance among those who want to keep the familiar failing model going in a version of intellectual authoritarianism that I often think is comparable to the medieval church in relation to physics. Those you will hear from later today, they will be speaking from the front line of experience. They are so important. They will rightly speak of the necessities of freedom of speech, belief, access to healthcare and housing, or the rights of those with a disability. But if they are to make progress in vindicating those rights, the recovered role of the state in the discourse is essential. In Ireland today, the question of a right to security of shelter and a home is most pressing for those of our people who are left out of the housing system and forced into homelessness or insecurity. There is not as yet a justiciable right to home or housing in either legislation or our constitution. Although the Convention on the Constitution had an important discussion on social and economic rights, which I do hope will be continued. I wish it well. Article 27 of the Universal Declaration does, of course, contain such a right. Vindicating that right will not and cannot be a matter solely for courts or lawyers alone, but will fundamentally be a question of how we wish our housing system to be structured. It will be, and we cannot avoid it, a question of politics. In what area? Will markets be the appropriate mechanism? And if they are, how and to what degree should they be regulated? More fundamentally, we should ask, to what degree do we as a society wish to commodify housing and treat the home as an economic good to be supplied for and by the market? As Professor P.J. Drudy and Dr. Michael Punch have outlined so long ago, these decisions have deep implications for the distribution of housing, financing and supply, and the creation or suppression of speculative markets in housing. In a society in which housing is heavily commodified, and one with a history of speculative market bubbles and residential and commercial property, this will no doubt provoke contentious debate. But these debates are necessary, ones we must have. And we would do well to heed the words of the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Adequate Housing, Raquel Reinick, who wrote in October 2008 
amidst the global financial crisis, I quote, the belief that markets will provide housing for all has failed. The current crisis is a stark reminder of this reality. A home is not a commodity, four walls and a roof. It is a place to live in security, peace and dignity, and a right for every human being. If we are unable to reconcile then our professed adherence to human rights and some conception of the home, if we regard it as a property or a commodity, will we not in time also find it difficult, even impossible, to engage with other very practical issues of policy on health, sustainability and climate change? We must ask ourselves, can we begin to muster the courage to engage in the task of rebalancing the relationship between markets, the state, ecology and civil society? Can we rediscover even the same type of moral courage that informed the Universal Declaration 70 years ago. That same vision that sustained those who imagined a new international economic order. I believe that we can. I believe that we must. Despair, as Immanuel Kant said, is unthinkable. And cynicism is being rejected by those young people whose imagination, being infinite, are full of hope. We are now seeing new movements across the world who approach the challenges of our collective future with neither apathy nor with cynicism, but with determination to recover together, collectively, ground lost or conceded. Movements and the politics that will question and overturn, I hope, failed orthodoxies that are determined to advance still further and to vindicate new rights in our century. So as we celebrate the 70 years of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, let us rededicate ourselves to the pursuit with hand and brain of the building of a society and a republic of social justice, equality, freedom and rights, not only for ourselves, but for all of the people of our vulnerable planet. Mila Buikas, thank you very much.